Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Imagine working for 12 hours a day in a place where the temperature is down to minus 40 degrees, twice as cold as your freezer. Imagine skiing uphill into the wind for 46 days pulling an 80k sledge. Add to that a severe and very painful cold injury to both legs from day seven. If anyone knows about mental toughness, Paula Reed, the adventure psychologist, does. She has earned resilience firsthand, from skiing to the South Pole to yacht racing around the world. Known as a performance catalyst, she's an expert speaker, mentor and facilitator, has written four books and delivered a TEDx talk on the stretch zone. So what's her story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Paula Reed, the adventure psychologist, welcome to Astrology. Uh, it's great to meet you. I want to dig first and foremost into your life, um, where it all started. So, you know, I'm fascinated by some of the things that you've done, and uh, we'll dig into that in some detail. But I guess my first question to you is, what was childhood like for you? Because for me, when I think of childhood, it kind of sounds like climbing trees and running around in forests and, and generally mucking about outside. But for you, what, what was what was childhood like? Yeah, I did that. I did that. I was very lucky in that I was allowed to roam wild by my parents and I'm quite old. So that was in the days when you disappeared out of the house at eight o'clock in the morning and you came back muddy and hungry at 6pm when it was getting dark. So so I, was, I think that was a good era to be a kid. So I, I grew up in Surrey, leafy, leafy Surrey, Sussex area, lots of woods, fields, trees. I remember two haunted houses that we used to explore and an old broken down lorry that we used to climb on and make camps on. So lots of camping, exploring, probably being a little bit naughty, you know, climbing through hedges and over walls and over fences and trotting across probably some private land. But absolutely very outdoorsy, not worrying about hurting or falling over or getting scratched. Yeah, kind of joyful, exploratory childhood of doing what I wanted and roaming where I liked and yeah, getting hungry and dirty. And and were you a big family, brothers, sisters? I had one older sister. So my parents basically were very supportive and positive and yet allowed both of us girls to grow up and be who we wanted to be. So I would say that both my sister and I have grown up to be quite confident and we were lucky in that respect, fully supported and encouraged. And then the sister's six years older than me. She's very into her horses. So I remember a few days of um, against my will horse riding and falling off on the golf course and stuff like that. So she influenced me to a certain extent as well. So in terms of who you who inspired you, if you like, or, or, or more to the point as a child, who you looked up to, would you say that your sister would have been chief amongst them? I think she was a stimulator or a catalyst. <laughs> I don't know if she's going to listen to this. So I've got to be a bit careful. <laughs> I think we both stimulated each other. We were both strong, confident, cheeky, into the same sort of stuff. So rugby and Formula One and stuff. So perhaps not very typical girls. And then 
I'm not sure there was any specific people I looked up to. I definitely was brought up in a very supportive, positive, happy house, which definitely helped. But then I think I found my adventurous spirit and my courage and all that from within. Interesting, because again, inevitably the question I I wanted to ask is when did you first sense you had that, what I might determine as a spirit of adventure? Was there a moment where you started to, I guess if you like it, a eureka moment where you thought, actually, this is, you know, this is very much what I'm about. I think there was kind of three. There was the general growing upness that I've already described that definitely gave me the skills and aptitude and confidence to just be out and explore and do stuff. There was also a girl at school when I was about 13 who influenced me in what many parents would say would be the wrong way. So I went from being a goody two shoes to a rebel at school and started to smoke and skive and wear stilettos with her. So I think she was quite an influence on me and took me off that sort of very beaten path or even that rut you could describe it as down the road less travelled. So she definitely influenced me. And then another time I unusually went to India for a month when I was about 15 with the school and it was a very out there trip, not at all safe or (laughs) controlled. And I realised during that trip that I was the main person who absolutely stood up and rose to the challenge of rural India, whereas the actual teachers and other students felt very uncomfortable in some of the circumstances we found ourselves in. So we were literally camping amongst tigers and stuff like that. So really rural India. And I just found myself rising to the challenge and being strong and pragmatic and very comfortable actually in that sort of place. So that is unusual. So if I look back uh, at my school days and today isn't about me clearly, but I remember as exotic a trip as I seem to remember Rabbit in Wales, uh, up in the Brecon Beacons, I think. I seem to remember there would have been a French trip at some point that would have involved pen pals or something like that. But something like India, I mean, that strikes me as being at the time, and we are of a similar age, uh, somewhat out there. So tell me, what was the story behind it? How did all that come about? The school I went to was a big comprehensive school and quite progressive. And we are going back to mid-80s, I guess. It was the International Year of the Youth, anyway. And then there was a project called UPRASA, which was an exchange between India and the UK, although the exchange never really happened. We just went out there. And it was all about connecting youth, I think, from what I remember, um, internationally. And so we attended a few conferences, but most of the month was, you know, middle of nowhere. They'd never seen white people before digging a well, building a building, camping, quite extreme stuff when you're 15. And, and from leafy Surrey, right? As, as dramatic a difference as arguably you might get at 15 years of age. Yeah. So I remember landing on, I think we landed on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. I know it was a, a weird time of year that we travelled. I think probably because the flights were cheap on Christmas Day or something. But I remember landing and it was Christmas Day. So we left, we left, you know, nice Surrey Christmas comfortable home and then arrived in Bombay as it was known at the time Mumbai which was really noisy dirty and smelly as a sort of cultural shock in our eyes and just going to the toilet was an extreme experience in comparison to my Surrey house as you can imagine. And it's obviously made quite an impression do you remember how you felt when first you stepped off that off that plane how did you feel? Yeah, I just, 
obviously stepping off the plane was pretty civilised because we were at an airport. But once the bus took us into the thick of Bombay and we were staying in an old school. So it wasn't a hotel or, or a youth hostel or anything. It was because it was all part of this international project. So it was just a rickety old school and they were long drop toilets literally in Bombay. So I just remember being kind of shocked, I think possibly appalled or slightly disgusted at first by the absolute change of condition that I wasn't expecting. But then you kind of get used to it. And and once you explore Bombay and India, you, you acclimatise, I suppose, and you're a bit less snobby and snotty about it all and you begin to appreciate what life is like out there and why and and all that but and so I gradually grew to love India because it is quite extreme and it does you know the smells and the colors and the culture and the religion and the attitudes and the clothing are so different from Surrey but it is quite a shock when you first land and you're 15. What do you, what do you think you learned about yourself off uh, fr- from that trip? Well that's what I was saying I think I think I realized about halfway through that I was the one that was coping really well. So even the headmaster, you know, was panicking at some points or just not behaving appropriately for the danger or the difficulty or the chaos that we were experiencing. So I think everyone was struggling and there was a lot that went wrong. And as I say, even, you know, tigers around where we were camping and stuff. But I kind of quite calmly became a bit of a a leader during it. And that's when I realized that I had the capacity somehow to cope with all the strangeness and the foreignness, if you like, of this exotic land and all the challenges and uncertainties that came with it, which is how I define adventure. You know, it's full of challenge and uncertainty. And maybe it, it just stimulates me and I rise to the occasion. But um, that's when I realised I loved travelling. I loved the the stimulus of all the, you know, coming at you from all, all the different senses and the extreme experience and peak experience that you get when you when you get involved in things like that. It's an interesting one, isn't it, around that whole sort of nature-nurture debate. You obviously were thrown into a set of circumstances in which arguably you you thrived or certainly started to to thrive. I guess at that point, how do you then come down from that? Because you've got to come back to leafy Surrey, school, reality. I guess it's the reality at the time, but the you know the the not necessarily mundane, but normal life that you would have experienced every day so what beyond that trip what did life look like when you came back I think then I was just I was in my first year of doing A-levels so it became sensible again I can't quite remember whether I hankered after it but I'm sure there was a a post-adventure low which is quite common you know you come back and face reality which is a bit too normal or boring or difficult compared to the extreme rock star experience you sometimes get when you're traveling so I think it just ended up being normal again. But then I had the itch, of course, and ended up backpacking around the world not that long after that. And I've gone back to India a few times. So I, I definitely got the itch. But it it was, as you say, a very memorable and extreme experience to have at that age. Mm. One that it would appear will come on to in due course, some of the things that you've done since, but one that has had quite quite an influence and has shaped you in many ways, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think so. I think it was an early experience that made me realise that I could. So I think with some of the challenges or expeditions that people do, just knowing that you can is huge. So rather than thinking you can't or being limited by a smaller world, I think it, it was an early door opener for me, both sort of mentally and physically and and knowing that I can cope with that or I can achieve something quite unusual. I don't know, it's interesting, isn't it? 
And also just going back to your thriving point, I've worked out that any day, wherever you are, some days you're just surviving. You're literally just plodding through the day and trying to get to the end. Some days you're coping and you're more or less on top of things, but other days you are thriving. So there's something about the probably the external conditions that make you feel really alive and energized and bring out all your strengths and so on. So it, it yeah, very interesting. So you you mentioned you you backpacked around the world. Was what age were you when you you threw the sleeping bag in a Tesco's carrier and off you went? I did have a very old rucksack with an external frame, which you hardly see these days. It was a few years later, to be fair. I was probably in my mid-twenties. It wasn't the, the, the usual route of do your A-levels and le- then right. leave. I did actually, I fancied earning some money. I was, you know, I was keen. I was keen to go to work and earn some money and buy things, probably from Dorothy Perkins or something. In those <laughs> so you, you studied as a teacher, is that right? At university, it was a, it, it, it did a bachelor of education and was teaching the route that you anticipated that would be the, the direction of travel? No, no, that was later as well. So I, I did my A-levels, which were a bit of a, I had to force myself to do those because I was busting to get out into the real world and earn some money and all that, uh, become a grown-up sort of thing. So I did the A-levels, then I did some work, then I did the backpacking. And then after that, I did a later degree as a mature student, allegedly. And then I did another degree since then. Yes. Okay. So t- tell me your, your round-the-world experiences as a late teens, early 20s, have a, that sort of age range. Any particular highlights? What, what were the real standouts for you? Yeah, I think what was interesting is that a lot of people in those days used to buy a round-the-world ticket, quite often from a company called Trail Finders. They specialised in the, the year-out thing. And it was a standard ticket. It was it was usually something like India, then Asia, then Australia, then America, then home. So it was physically a proper round-the-world ticket. But they were fairly standard stops and fairly civilised-ish countries to stop at. So I remember we did India, and it was quite a wild India again, a wild experience again. And then I think we probably did Bangkok and being young had an amazing, incredible time in Bangkok. But then I realised that Indonesia was actually quite an interesting place. So once we got to Australia, we actually went back through Asia and Indonesia instead of America because we just thought it'd be more interesting and culturally, you know, fascinating. So, yeah, I think one of the interesting things was rather than the standard stops, we realised that it was the stops or the off the beaten track countries that were more fascinating and interesting so rather than go to america we did like borneo and kalimantan and sulawesi and lombok and komodo so that was a highlight just that change of plan were those places what you imagined they were going to be they were better i think were they so we went to kalimantan which is the eastern bit of borneo so that huge island, which is Sabah and Sarawak and so on, the, the Indonesian lump of it is Kalimantan. And it was, again, very, very rural. So we caught a river boat up a river and went into the thick of the Dayaks and the tribes. So long houses and Dayaks and all that culture around that. And again, funny enough, it was Christmas. So uh, we spent Christmas Day just with a, with a Dayak tribe up the river in the middle of Kalimantan. And I loved it. Fantastic. Great experiences. Great experiences. So, so tell me, you, you then come back into post-travel, back into education again. Is that how that played out? You came back and you, you, you then settled down to the, to the prospect of a teaching degree? Yeah, I possibly did some more work, but then I did do a Bachelor of Education, which was a four-year teaching degree. I'm not quite sure why, because I do, I do really like children and I do really like 
encouraging and motivating and inspiring people to learn and grow and develop. So I guess that's why. But actually, once I became a teacher, I hated it. Right. <laughs> so, um, so I did have a class of lovely 10-year-olds, and I still remember them to this day. But I handed in my notice after one term. But I still, I mean, I still did the whole year for the sake of my class without, you know, leaving them to it. So, so it just wasn't for me. It was. Why not? Do you think? What was it? It was, it was a mess. It was when the national curriculum was first introduced and it was, you know, there was 17 subjects to teach and various attainment levels within that. So it was just so complicated and such a weighty job and loads and loads of work outside of the actual face-to-face school hours. So it was very oppressive. And, you know, I'd be working seven days a week easily and doing really long days and working to the holidays. It was it was not a pleasant experience in those days, I'm afraid. So at what point did you think a career in adventure, travel, however you might want to define it, was there a, a eureka moment where you think, this is my passion? How do I... How do I therefore start to think about making a career out of it? No, not really. It was an evolutionary situation. Um, I did end up having an amazing job that I really loved. I uh, did that for seven years. And it was only towards the end of that time that I wanted to move on. But then I really loved the job. What, what, were, you, what were you doing? It was an employee engagement company called Involve. So live events, face-to-face live events for hundreds or thousands of people for big blue chip companies. So really good fun. And we had a work hard, play hard culture full of young people. So we, yeah, we worked really hard, produced amazing events and then parted hard as well. Most nights in London. So, so it was, it was mad and I loved it. However, I just got to the end of my growing, you know, I just got stuck my head hit the ceiling and I just started to not get any more sort of growth or, or engagement out of it. So I decided to leave, but I didn't want to regret that decision. So I decided to sail off around the world instead, um, as you do. So I took part in the global challenge around the world yacht race, which some people might know as the um, British Steel or BT Global Challenge. And had you, at that point in your life, had you done any sailing previously? Not really, no. <laughs> so what was why why did you pick that particular event? Because it was so extremely difficult from my usual life again. So I think I believe in living life to the full. I'm not sure if there is life after death, but I do want there to be life before death. And the more extreme and enriching and different the experiences are that I can have, the more I think I'm living life and learning and growing and developing. So I'd probably sailed about twice for about an hour with my uncle when I was maybe, you know, 10 or 11. And that was it. So I applied to do the global challenge in a very extreme way, I suppose, because I didn't have sailing experience. Um, I certainly wasn't a sailor. I wasn't even really looking forward to sailing, but I knew it was going to be one of the biggest, most impactful amazing experiences of my life and that weighed up against all the other reasons not to do it had you read about it had you seen any i guess back in those days it might even have been video but had you seen any tape of back it back in or? those days <laughs> it was a black and white photo <laughs> is that what it was <laughs> thank you <laughs> sepia tinted no um i was on a blind date in a pub and we weren't really hitting it off 
so so the flirting and the potential for the for the second date was out the window but we're trying to make the most of of being together so he just happened to mention that he'd seen an advert that day on the tube on the london underground for a round the world yacht race and some people might know those posters they're quite iconic and that sowed the seed and that night I remember getting home from the date and looking it up and thinking oh that's interesting and it just got me going and I applied. And so what was it talk me through the selection process because I would imagine you you don't you know because of I've been fortunate to have met and interviewed several people who've done something similar and consistent theme throughout had been the emphasis around team and teamwork and forming that great team so it was quite a rigorous process as I recall to get the right groups the right mindsets and the right capabilities together it's difficult to get in I guess is my point or certainly that's my perception what was the what was the selection process I guess how did you end up ultimately on board ship so lack of sailing experience so obviously that didn't get me in but attitude wins the day I think over experience really anytime However, the Global Challenge was set up by Sir Che Blythe and it was designed to allow ordinary people to achieve something extraordinary. That was kind of the strap line. So the point of it was really to um, make this very extreme and elite sport accessible to normal people. And if they really persevered fundraising and then really persevered getting fit for it and taking part, then it obviously shows what you're made of and you, again, you rise to the occasion. And that was kind of the principle of it. So the fact that I didn't have sane experience and that I was an ordinary person was kind of part of the whole thing, the point. So in a way, I was a perfect candidate because I was ordinary, I wasn't a sailor, but I had a good attitude. So they obviously interview you and so on. And one of the most interesting interview questions was on a scale, if you can imagine literally holding your hands out on a scale, on the one end you've got, why are you doing it? Are you just doing it for the experience? And on the other end, are you doing it to win? And that was fascinating because on our boat we had a mixture. We had people just doing it for the experience of it and possibly didn't even care where we finished in the race But then at the other end, you've got people on the boat who are determined to win and they'll win at all costs and their whole concentration on their performance and energy and mindset is to win. So so that was an interesting interview question. And where were you? Well, interestingly, when they asked me at first, I was just doing it for the experience. My aim was to survive and not kill anybody, to be honest, you know not having sailed and taking off in a 45-ton boat in a Force 10 gale is pretty dangerous. So so actually my aim initially was just to survive, but really it was for the experience. But interestingly, throughout the race, you get how you're performing across the fleet given to you four times a day. So every six hours in a 24-hour period, you're told everyone's positions and you can't help but feel pretty happy or pretty glum about where you're performing when you're competing 24 hours a day against 11 other boats for 10 months. So I gradually went from from the experience to winning because it's just kind of impacted your day and the whole point of it was racing. So I got more and more into the competitive element. And was that something you saw across the crew in varying degrees? I guess those that were winning from the outset may be less evident. 
in terms of the journey that 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 journey to win. But did you see that was something consistent amongst your your colleagues that they all ultimately got to that point where they were, you know, it was all about the winning. No, I'd say we still had a right old mix, and in fact, we had some people who were pretty relaxed about the performance side of things, which made it interesting. And also, interestingly, the ones that were at the end of winning, I think they did change because they all, they went the other way more. They realised that for a ten month experience with eighteen people, a lot of it was also about the teamwork or the experience or look at the stars or going around Cape Horn. So so <laughs> I think we all changed a bit both ways, interestingly, and we were still a mix of people of um, skills and attitudes and motivations and drives and all sorts. So the people element, 18 people on a 72-foot boat for 10 months was just as fascinating as obviously the actual sailing and racing. And were there, I would imagine for that length of time, inevitably there are highs and significant lows was there ever a point at which you thought my goodness what on earth have I just want to get off what on earth have I done sort of but I love those moments Lee I think that's what makes you feel fully alive you know so yeah we had horrendous times horrendous conditions extremely traumatic and very difficult situations and yet and although the the normal narrative would be get me out of here actually that's where I feel like I am fully alive and I'm fully making the most of the gift of life that we've got and so on. So when we were going around Cape Horn, it's a long story and it will take two hours to tell you. So short version, we're going around Cape Horn. We had to carry out two separate medical evacuations with a week apart. And by the end of all the mess that that was, we were four crew down and 3,000 miles behind all the other boats again fun enough on christmas day so um that was pretty difficult we'd we'd felt we'd we'd felt quite vulnerable because one of the the medical evacuations had been an accident so suddenly you're in the southern ocean near cape horn with 22 meter waves in the freezing conditions four crew down 3000 miles behind and it's christmas you know, it couldn't get much worse. As they say, worse things happen at sea, right? However, I wouldn't have missed that for the world. Why not? Because it was such a rich experience. It was tough. I quite, I, I enjoy being forced to tough up. And I think, you know, we are made, we are way more capable and incredible as human beings than we really realise. So I think when you have to dig deep and you realise there's more, within you and you dig a bit deeper and there's more within you and then you look at your fellow human beings around you and they're all full of courage and commitment as well you can't help but be inspired and encouraged by that whereas I think in normal everyday life we just don't have that amount of challenge or condition that forces that out of us so I think that's when you know you're really living as a human being and you are finding out what you're really made of, which is normally way more than we ever realise. And I would imagine that when you're tested like that, you see also amongst those that you're with, the very best and the very worst of human nature, arguably, because when you're under that extreme of pressure, you get all sorts of differing reactions, I'd imagine. Yeah, you definitely see the very best. And 
I've realised that what makes me emotional is normally when I see amazing behaviour despite very difficult circumstances. So humility or courage or, you know, support for each other or strength, you know, strength, physical or, or psychological strength, that's when I feel the most emotional and teary, if you like. When you see the worst in people, I normally assume there's a reason for that and then I try and empathise with what's going on actually underneath it. Because when you see the worst behaviours, actually deep down inside that person, I'm assuming there's some fear or anxiety or something that's feeding that. So I normally try and empathise and dig around and support them cope better perhaps. Interesting. So tell me, when you crossed the finish line, how did you feel? <laughs> Finishing line is a very funny place to be in it, generally, with any race or, or endurance event or life or whatever. It's a very mixed place to be. So there's a famous thing which is post-adventure blues because you've lost that sexiness of feeling fully alive and vitally alive. And with the global challenge, you know, there's thousands of people that watch and thousands that come out on that last day to see you in. And there's confetti cannons and the, the mayor and speeches and champagne and, and massive celebrations, which is fantastic, of course. But then inside, you're feeling pretty sad that it's over. And you kind of want to carry it on. In fact, famously, in one of the big round the world races initially, one guy just did carry on past his wife and children, which which I think was a bit <laughs> a bit difficult for them to handle. But um, it's very mixed, you know. Sometimes you wish for that day when it's going to finish, when you're able to use a normal toilet and eat normal food and sit on a sofa and watch telly. But actually, you don't feel quite so alive when you do that. So you do miss you you miss the glory and the pain. <laughs> um, so it's very mixed. How do you deal with that? How do you cope with it? Well, for me personally, I just know what works is setting myself another goal and focusing on another challenge. Not necessarily a big physical challenge, but just something else to to pull my attention to something that I can then focus on or get fit for or find out about or or get excited about. So I know that works for me. So just a new goal, a new challenge. And when, when do you set that? So in the example of the round the world challenge do you, do you before you get off you know, before you before you head off on the on the start line are you already thinking about the next challenge or setting the next goal um so that you've got perhaps arguably therefore something to look for forward to post the event or do you get to the end of the event and say right what's next uh what i found is that it's towards the end so they talk about having four quarters of a, an adventure or a challenge and the first quarter is obviously the most exciting because everything's new and you're learning a lot and and all that and the third quarter tends to be the hardest because you're nearly there but you're not really nearly there you've still got a lot long way to go and you're by then quite tired and all that so the fourth quarter towards the end of that maybe you start to be probably quite good at whatever it is you're doing so you're you're, you're by then quite competent at sailing or skiing or mountaineering or whatever it is you're doing so your mental capacity is used up less because your skill set is is more automatic so then your head is more free to contemplate life and to reflect and obviously the end is drawing near and that makes you reflect as well so I find in the last depending on what I'm doing and how long I've got maybe in the last month or a week that's when you start to ponder the future 
And that's actually what I've realized is, is a good time to start going, okay, what's next? What exactly am I going to do when I get home? So there might be obviously a party or seeing people or whatever, but then also what's next, but without, without being obsessive or weird about it, but just, you know, what do I now want to do? And it might be doing a degree or it might be going on a holiday, you know, whatever's feels right. But yeah, something, something to just pull you onwards and move you forward, despite the sadness of finishing whatever it is you're doing. How do you live in the moment though? Is there always that sense of if you, if you are thinking what next, how do you bring yourself back to actually I, the now, I, you know, at the end of the day, you've, you've got to live in that moment. I suspect there are times through some of the, we'll come on to some of them, I'm sure, but the difficult challenges that you've experienced, the circumstances themselves, the situation forces you to be in the now because you have to be concentrating on what you're doing. But if you are in that sort of mindset that says, right, I know I need to be moving on to the next thing, whether that is a holiday or whether that's a huge challenge, how do you live in the now? So I have kind of studied the living in the now stuff. I'm a big fan of Eckhart Tolle, who wrote yeah, books about that. And I, I feel like I really understand what living in the moment or living now or being fully present really is. And I did at first struggle with the how do I plan or how do I think about the future if I'm meant to be living in the moment? But he had a good answer, which I will paraphrase and get wrong probably, but you can still be fully present even though you are thinking or planning for the future, if that makes sense. So you're still fully present. You're still, it's a conscious decision to, to think about the future or to plan for the goal, but you're still present in that moment, even though planning is the activity, if that makes sense. It's a bit of a weird one, but I, I, 99% of my time, I live, I live fully now, for sure. So how do you celebrate success? Do you celebrate success? Yeah, I think it's really important. So one of the things that I do is uh, long distance cycling. I've cycled across 12 countries so far, and I tend to do about 80 miles a day. I generally enjoy it, but obviously sometimes my bum hurts or the weather's not very good. And that's when you need a little bit of distraction or celebration going on. So I've got into the habit now of segmenting my effort. And so every 10 miles that I cycle, which depending on the train, can be 40 minutes, it can be an hour and a half. So it's a 10 mile marker and I make sure I celebrate every 10 miles. Now that normally means I ring my bike bell and shout, but quite often it also means getting off to stretch and have a miles bar. Interesting. So you've been around the world sailed around the world, huge challenge. You come back, you cross the finish line. Where do you go from there? Well, you get off the boat, <laughs> you go to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> so you do celebrate success. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a big ceremony when the fleet finished on the Sunday. So down at Portsmouth, you know, speeches and awards and trophies and everything. But yes, um, so celebrations and then... So I, I did I did think a bit during the Global Challenge and decided to write a couple of books about it and launch a company. So that was a nice diversion. And basically it was using all the lessons and learnings and knowledge and development from taking part in such an extremely challenging and competitive race and taking it into business. So I met somebody on the, our boat and we created a business together called VMG, Velocity Made Good, which is a yacht race expression for going in the right direction at the right speed. 
And we took that to businesses. So using the global challenge as a case study, we obviously talked about leadership and crisis and personal development and motivation and wrote a couple of books. So, so that was quite a nice, new and different goal, having finished the global challenge. You say, you know, wrote a couple of books. I, I, yeah. I'm certainly one of those people that might have the odd delusion of grandeur and anticipate that there's a book in there somewhere and I'm going to get it out. But, but actually writing a couple of books is a significant undertaking. So tell me a bit about that writing experience. What was, what was the cliche, but what was the journey like for you? Yeah, well, it's just another, for me, it's another interesting life experience. So although I, I do a lot of physical challenges, I quite like the mental challenges too. So that's why I've done a couple of degrees. And when you write a book, it's a lovely, you know, it's, it's a mental uh, challenge rather than a physical one. So it's it's strengthening your brain and your brain muscles. It's getting you much more into the language and the use of words. It's cognitively really pushing you and it helps you process through whatever it is you're writing about. So I really enjoy writing actually in the journey or the process that you go through. So the actual physical writing can be a bit of a pain. You know, how many hours a day do you do and when do you do it and sitting at your laptop and all that. But the but the, the mental journey you go through, I really enjoy because it really sorts your head out and makes, I think it sharpens your thinking and sharpens your brain because you're basically constructing a narrative and trying to make sentences really powerful and using the right words in the right way and all that. So it's a good exercise and I've really enjoyed it. I've written four now and I'm just about to do a, an academic textbook, which I enjoy less because I think academic books can be a bit too highbrow and use too many long words whereas I believe in making books accessible, but we'll see. So you've written four books, mm. just about to embark on the fifth. What, uh, what are the books that you've written? Tell me. So two were based on the Global Challenge because it's such a rich story and a rich case study. You know, everything happens on the Global Challenge. You've got 18 people on a boat for 10 months racing competitively around the world. So yeah, it's, it's a massive story in itself with so many details that are fascinating. So one's called Boat to Boardroom. So it's all the stuff we, we learned on the boat that we could take into the boardroom. One's called the Seven Racing Rules. So it was our seven main rules that we used to beat the competition or to, to perform as well as we could. So one of the rules, for instance, is best for boat. In that was our decision-making best for boat rather than being biased or political or personal or emotional and stuff. So we're using things like that. One book is called The World's Most Dangerous Jobs, which was fun because I basically interviewed about 25 people who had really dangerous jobs. And I loved it because I met all these incredible people from all over the world who are very happy sharing their stories with me. So astronauts and bomb disposal experts and Formula One drivers and all sorts. So I loved that one. It was good fun. And then I wrote one about my philosophy and way that I live my life called Living Life to the Full, which is how how do you live the life that you want to live? Not necessarily my life, but how do you really live the life that you want to live and make the most of it, I guess. So the philosophy around that was some stories about what I've done. And for those that are listening that might want to read those books because they sound fascinating where can where can you pick them up i guess available in all good bookstores seems like the uh the i'm not sure nowadays use. whether people go <laughs> no. to good books um thank you very much for that uh amazon paula reed reid and uh they're all there fantastic so if you, if you go back to 2005 you launched velocity made good is that right at the yeah, point at which yeah. you also launched paula reed the adventure psychologist which i think is a wonderful phrase at what point did you decide that 
you wanted to make a career out of the experiences that you were in enjoying? Was it on board? Was it as, whilst you're out taking part in the uh, Round the World Challenge? Was that the point at which you thought, you know, there, there really is something in this? The learning is so vast. The experiences are so rich that actually to impart those experiences to people would be, you know, would be a fascinating career to embark upon. Yeah, I think it was then, it was while we're thinking what next after the Global Challenge and everyone on deck, you know, when you're on watch and on deck and you're good at sailing, you know, there is the time and space to reflect and discuss and ponder and you certainly haven't got television or anything distracting you. So there was a lot of discussions and chats about life after the Global Challenge and uh, that was when a few of us, you know, were wondering about business and having a career after we got back and so on. And, and certainly it became quite evident that it was a very rich case study to use. And as I say, myself and another member of the crew decided to put that company together. So I think there's probably, there's a lot of speakers out there and workshops are based around adventure or sailing or mountaineering. It's a really good analogy with, with rich stories and imageries and metaphors. But I'd also had quite a lot of experience in business as well. So I find it relatively easy to convert a story about sailing or skiing or whatever to a business context. And I think that's where it was landing very well, that I understood leadership. I understood the difficulty of managing people or whatever. So I was able to mesh the two together quite happily and use the adventure stories for narrative and metaphor and imagery and and some sort of quite hard lessons and then convert it into business and do the, you know, the so what connection between the two. So tell me, you've, you've done lots of fascinating things. Of the challenges that you've undertaken, which has been the one that you had found to have been the most rewarding and why? Well, I'm personally very proud of skiing to the South Pole, which I did in 2014, 2015, because that was relentlessly tough. And it was more about individual effort and motivation than team. So I take that on myself. I give myself a clap on the back for that one. It was it was 46 days of skiing from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole. Blooming difficult anyway. So minus 40 degrees, uphill, into the wind, pulling 80 kilograms. Extremely tough and difficult. Even just to cook in the tent is hard. So it was it was tough. However, I then got a, a very nasty cold injury on both my legs on day seven. And I stuck it out. So so that's the one that I'm most personally proud of because I think, as I said, it was down to my personal effort and motivation. So my physical and mental strength. At what point do you decide, I know what I'll do. I'll, I know, I'll ski to the South Pole. That seems like a good idea on a wet Wednesday in, in Surrey. Mm-hmm. That's, what I, that's what I might go and do. At what point did you decide this is something I need to achieve? Well, it was on the list. That's the thing. Was it? You know, really? Yeah, yeah, have a list. <laughs> Otherwise <laughs> things don't get done. <laughs> You know, people talk about having a bucket list, things to do before you kick the bucket. I come on the living life to the fullest and I just fairly casually put things on as kind of a reminder that maybe one day that would be quite interesting to do or something. And they just literally come as flashes of, you know, moments of inspiration. You think, oh yeah, it might be interesting. Something yeah, I might or if look I at read that. an article or somebody right. says something or I see a photo, I'll just go, oh, that looks, that looks worthwhile. That looks interesting, exciting, difficult challenging funny whatever it doesn't you know anything goes it's just about doing what you want to do to a certain extent so um, any stimulus and any type of thing goes on the list it can be quite small like being able to wolf whistle using your fingers in your mouth which I still can't do it's on Um, my list too (laughs) I'd love to be able to do that but I still um, can't do it (laughs) 
And yeah, North Pole slash South Pole just casually ended up on the list because obviously, you know, if you want to explore the world or live life to the full, then it's a fairly hefty old thing to potentially want to do. Penguins, Scott of the Antarctic, Antarctica, you know, incredible stuff, right? So it did go on quite casually. But then um, one one day, yes, I did think I'm kind of feeling the need for a big challenge or a big adventure and to physically put myself through my paces again and do something amazing. So I just started to investigate what that would actually look like if if I ever did it. The thing that struck me as I'm 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 reading about you, I'm thinking, how do you make that happen? How, you know, how, what's the journey to arrive on the South Pole with your skis before you even you know? So what goes on prior? How do you make an expedition like that happen? <laughs> so there's you know that someone like me who's who's clearly never done something like that. How do you make it happen? You would need a whole other podcast for that answer, right? It took a year. Something for the bucket list as well. Then. <laughs> the the journey, the 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 prior to departure bit is just as interesting and just as challenging and fascinating and developmental as the actual ski. In fact, the ski is the end bit, you know. And and, and, and critical, I would, because you're talking about, you know, without wishing to put too fine a point on it, it life-threatening experiences, yeah. arguably, if you don't organise it in the right way, give attention to detail at every step of the way you know there's so absolutely i mean it's yeah. critical fact, to get it right before you even even set foot on the ice so my strap line for the business is going knowingly into the unknown nice so adventure psychology specializes in the psychology bit but obviously there's physical kit and physical strength as well but if you're taking on a venture or a challenge or an expedition you should go knowingly otherwise you're being reckless so going knowingly into the unknown, you do your best to prepare beforehand and then you leap off into that unknown and you leap off into that challenging situation. I mean, even base jumpers, physically, they are leaping off, but they do an awful lot of prep beforehand. So it's that thing. So I worked really hard for about a year to get absolutely everything as ready as I could because, as you say, it was really life and deathy once you're out in Antarctica. So physical fitness, um, massive. I was doing that six days a week for a year, training in Norway to understand the, you know, the hygiene and the admin factors of skiing and pulling a poke and camping in the snow, buying all the kit. That was massive and making sure every single bit of kit was just right including the sun cream you've put on your face. There's only one sun cream that doesn't have water in it. Otherwise, it would freeze on your face. And that's Elizabeth Arden 8-Hour Cream. And that's the only sun cream you can buy, when I did it anyway, that that didn't have any water content. So massive preparation and really critical attention to detail. And what makes you even think of something like that? I mean, it's clearly my naivety, but as you're saying that, I'm thinking, okay, that sounds like an obvious, but, but the fact that, sun cream would even have water in it would never enter my mind Mm. where do you where do you go about acquiring that knowledge is that it's not kind of a you know i I would imagine there's not a library that says right here's here's all the books ever written about you know skiing to the south pole read these books and everything will take care of itself you've got to go there's a a huge amount of discovery that goes on beforehand yeah and decision making because there's not clear that it's not a googleable thing which most things are these days Absolutely. So, and there's so very few people have done it, and then very few women. So, anything to do with being female as well, there's even less knowledge about because obviously 
And, and it's not much, but things like shiwis and stuff. <laughs> so I did read lots of books and albeit the books were about, you know, Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton and all those amazing people. You still learn a lot. You know, you still learn a bit about what to expect and how to cope with Antarctica just by reading those accounts from 100 years ago. Then I rooted out some people that had actually been there and I had face-to-face long chats with them about everything. And then obviously you do a bit of research online. And, I, and things like learning from Norway. You know, Norway is one of the leading countries for ski expeditions. And in fact, Amazon, <laughs> uh, as much as we talk about Scott in the UK, you know, Amazon was pretty successful getting to South Pole, right? So it's things like learning from the best, learning from the locals, learning from people that have done it. You do what you can and going knowingly into the unknown included psychological prep so you knew what to expect and you were mentally robust and strong before you got there because you need everything that it takes to survive once you're down there. But but do you do you know what to expect and in reality how do you know what to expect when you're as you say knowingly into the unknown the point being it is unknown so with all the preparation in the world and I guess you have to you have to trust the preparation, but you're also going into a circumstance that, frankly, you're you're part of a very elite group of people who've done things that the vast majority of us will never experience. There are surely times on that journey when you're starting to question: Have I have I done enough? Have I done everything? Have I got the, it's human nature, right? So we're always questioning. Do you question the prep sometimes? Do you self overanalyze? Have I done everything I possibly can? You just have to trust it and and jump in so first of all there's transferable skills and strengths if you've achieved x in another event or country or trip you can generally transfer similar approaches or skills or kit to the next trip so so yes it is into the unknown even just the future is unknown right but we do have a set of knowledges <laughs> strengths and skills and stuff that we've done before that you learn to adapt slightly for that new unknown situation. So the more we experience in life, the more life experience we have that we can convert and adapt to the new situation, which is why I believe like adventuring is such a useful life thing to do because it feeds you with skills and expertise and knowledge and felt experience and lived experiences that you can then remember quite quickly and transfer and adapt with. So there is that. So yes, it is an unknown experience. I've never been to Antarctica before, but having done all I've done, even like how to use an iPhone in cold conditions, you know, there's 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 stuff, a lot of stuff you can transfer. And the more you read and talk to people, the more you can anticipate and do some anticipatory thinking. So whether that's visualization or just imagining or just thinking things through, you do feel, I felt as ready as I could be by the time I got there. And was it what you were expecting? It was more beautiful, more surreal and tough, relentlessly tougher than I was expecting. So I was ready. I was definitely ready. I was itching to start by the time we got there. It's like, come on, come on. I've, I've got all the kit. I'm strong. I'm physically fit. I've learned how to free heel ski. Let's do it. Let's do it. But then just being in Antarctica is a very ex- extreme and surreal experience, of course. So that was, a, that was an awe genuinely using the word awe, awesome experience. And then I I hadn't expected it to be so relentlessly difficult. I knew it'd be difficult, but it was like 24 hours a day difficult. 
where even weeing and cooking and sleeping is hard. <laughs> so there's no let up. And that's the severity of the conditions that's driving that extremity. Yeah, I was expecting to have a bit of lightness or a bit of fun or a bit of relax, but that never really happens because everything you do is extremely important and vital. And you're skiing for like 12 hours a day and then admin is about five hours a day. So you've got a 17 hour day of very sensitive, very crucial things that you're doing. And then even just to sleep for those remaining few hours, you know, you're very cold. And if you need to go loo in the middle of the night, then that's quite a big deal and so on. So, so really there's no let up. It's a continuously tough, arduous, thoughtful, demanding situation, 24 hours a day really for, for 46 days. And the only moment of lightness that I remember, there might be a three in 46 days, but the main moment of lightness I remember is I once stepped off the track from the direction that we were going in, took off my harness, did a snow angel and then got back onto the track. You mentioned you, you got an injury. Um, how did that occur? Tell me about that. You were going to ask about whether I was thinking of giving up again, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. And it's about living life to full again is the answer again. So yeah, I got an injury. So there's a thing called polar thigh, which you only get in the poles and you only get on your thighs, <laughs> funnily enough. It's a known condition, but it's a fairly recent phenomena. We think it more women than, than men get it probably but there's there's very little data because very few people do this sort of stuff obviously so the cool thigh and it's a non-freezing cold injury it's categorized as so it's not frostbite and basically I was going to say if you're not careful but I was careful basically what can happen is through being in the cold and probably from some of the abrasion that happens between your base layer and your thighs whilst you're constantly scissoring while you're skiing there's some sort of flesh breakdown going on, which starts like a load of chillblains. Then your legs ulcerate and then your flesh starts getting proper, proper nasty. <laughs> so um, it can be, you can end up with some really nasty, deep, open flesh wounds all over your thighs by the end. It's not nice and it's not, it's really painful because it attacks your nerves as well. How do you cope with that? How do you switch <laughs> off from that? Do you switch off from it? Yeah, so I probably used about 50 different coping mechanisms in the uh, 39 days that I had left. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. So quick answer. <laughs> Distraction techniques. Counting is a famous one. Just counting ridiculously, relentlessly can distract your mind. I tended to play games inside my head, like, you know, name animals from A to Z or something like that as much humour and laughter and if you can get your iPod working or whatever, music and, you know, stand-up comedy. I used to listen to Eddie Izzard. As much of that as you can to lighten your mood, which which makes your state more positively energised. Hundreds of painkillers, way more than the prescribed dosage, to be fair. Although I couldn't take anything too strong because I had to be compass mentis, of course. Uh, and all sorts, you know, digging deep thinking that other people have probably had it tougher, all sorts of things. Wow. I, I, I mean, I think, so I will ask the question, was <laughs> there a point at which you think I, I'm going to, I think I don't really know the answer based on some of the comments you've already made, but was there ever a point where you think enough, I'm done, this is too much? So when, 
when we do these challenges, there are going to be times, of course, that we will want to quit. Otherwise, there won't be challenges, right? However, I believe that by and large, it's not the time to quit. Now and again, yeah. And it's hard to know when's a good time and when's not in hindsight. So I, I think there's legit quits and something that rhymes with quit, which isn't quite so comfortable. And yeah, on day seven and day eight, I was feeling pretty down about it and I hadn't quite sorted out my head around it. So I did feel quite depressed and upset for a couple of days while I was struggling with the mental concept of maybe having to evacuate. That was hard. But I rallied and over those two days, I eventually realized that it was my choice whether to evacuate or not. And that gave me the control back. And then I felt more of a master instead of a victim, if you like. And then it was about having a good strategy to make sure that I looked after myself and that I could cope and that I wasn't letting the team down. I think it... um the, the the range of emotions and I, I mean i can see it i can see it as you're you're experiencing it. i can almost see you physically going back to the point at which you were on on that journey it's it's your point around the the lessons that can be learned from these expeditions journeys that you've embarked upon and how you can then subsequently translate them or or use them in in life as a metaphor for life in general it's it's true but i think the injury one is an interesting one because i would imagine you you set off on a, an expedition such as that, full of hope, full of, I would imagine, day one, it's exciting, the, the adrenaline's pumping, you're probably feeling on a bit of a high, I would imagine, because finally, after all that prep, you're ready to go. Eight days in, seven days in, you get an injury. You know, that's that's tough. And it's interesting, I've talked to a, um, to sports people, for example, through this podcast, and, and actually coping with injuries is is, is a challenge, generally. But the, the, the mental resilience, the strength that you've evidenced through consistently throughout this is is really quite something. And it's a real source of inspiration. So do you remember how you, when, when you got to the South Pole, again, you, we talked about crossing finishing lines, but again, that puts you as part of an elite group of people. Very few people have ever gotten it. How did that feel on on that day? How, talk me through those emotions. That was just massive. <laughs> I bet. Massive. So by then, my legs were seriously bad. and. I think the last couple of nights I was feverish because I remember having very vivid dreams, drinking lots of water during the night and needing to wee three or four times a night uh, and just having very restless sleep. So I think I had got quite feverish. My legs were extremely excruciatingly painful to the point I was crying every morning when I had to get up because the wounds cracked open again and bled a lot. And when I started skiing, because that had to get them going again. And then every night when you're kneeling down and bending down to put the tent up. So so all those times a day, they're especially painful, let alone just skiing along. So I was at my wits end. And interestingly, I say to people, I don't think I could have done another day. So then that's interesting, isn't it, as to where the finishing line is, as to how much you can regulate your motivation to get there. And I say now, to people that you should aim for slightly beyond the finishing line because otherwise you can switch off too early so I remember all that I remember the last day being a sort of half a day because we were nearly there and it wasn't a full day of skiing so that was quite a joy however it was still extremely tough also near the end you're not really allowed to 
go to the toilet much. So, so that was interesting. We had to pick up our own outputs, as it were, and then not go at all for the last bit. So scientifically interesting as well. All this stuff going on. And also you start to make out the Antarctic research station. So the buildings, the flags, the satellite dishes, the telescopes, you know, they're getting clearer and clearer and clearer. But then if you think about them too much, you start to think you're there. So then you have to pull back and go, no, 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 I'm not there yet. Carry on, carry on. I've still got to summon another two or three hours of energy before I start to switch off or think I'm there. So that was that was a dilemma all the time. And then once we got near there, there were a couple of people to greet us and congratulate us. And that's when I felt myself starting to crack because my face was aching from trying not to cry because you can't really see where you're going when you're crying and it freezes and it's it's quite painful on your face to cry. So so I was trying to celebrate, but we weren't quite there yet. And I was trying not to cry. And then the last bit, just skiing there and then actually physically getting there and touching the amazing mirror ball that is at the South Pole. And then just that huge sense of relief and pride and tears and wonder that that I'd got there. So yeah, it was huge, huge. Wow. It's 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 an incredible story. Has there ever been a challenge you've undertaken that for want of a better phrase or word has disappointed you that actually you thought, Hmm, that was fairly straightforward. It quite wasn't the challenge that I'd hoped it might have been. And if so, how did that make you feel? Hmm. It probably is. I can't think of one to hand because in a way I believe that all life is an experience and, you know, every day being fully present is is a good day. Probably. I think I'm more likely to disappoint myself than than be disappointed by the situation. I remember I've done the London to Brighton bike ride about 10 times in fancy dress and one year I was dressed as a gladiator in very heavy fancy dress outfit and it was pouring with rain, thunder and lightning, the roads were flooded and my sister lives halfway and she drove down to meet me in her Range Rover and said, Paula, get in, it's, it's ridiculous, these conditions. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to finish, I always finish. But then the seed of that warm, cosy home and not having to cycle in such horrendous conditions was sown. And for the next mile, I just just remember thinking, oh, I should have said yes. They're probably having some red wine and a Sunday lunch and sitting in front of the table. And then I quit. And that really annoys me still to this day. So I've disappointed myself a few times. How did you cope with that? Just still bugs me. <laughs> I enjoyed it at the time, of course. But then there's something called type two fun, which is when it's grim at the time, but you enjoy it afterwards. And I missed out on that. <laughs> do, you, do you find, does that London to Brighton experience you've just you've just related does that linger more so than reflecting on the success of having skied to the south pole completed the, the round the world yacht the, the, the they're big they are really genuinely i'm not trying to sound like a fanboy don't know but is it genuinely they are wonderful incredible achievements do you but do you find yourself naturally kind of reflecting on the one that got away more so than realizing the successes you achieved no lee i'm not i'm not I'm I'm pretty I've got my feet on the ground really. I'm quite pragmatic about life and I and I know how we work as human beings generally because I've got a master's degree in psychology. So no, I use it as a lesson. I don't use it as a stick to beat myself up with, but I do use it as a lesson. And the memory of it and how it felt before and after, I again don't use it as a stick, but I do use it as a knowing that that can happen. 
Well, on the South Pole expedition, in fact, one of the group members did stop on day 31. And I think it was mainly because he had an exit door in his head open for a lot of the trip and it was just pulling him away. He had every step as a victory on his skis and I think his mindset was no matter how far I get, that is a success, which is totally true, of course. But I think it beckoned him out of the trip. Interesting. So what does success mean to you? Without sounding too anal, I think we can define success for kind of everything we do. I mean, obviously I don't because that would be ridiculous. But as an example, there's a 10-mile cycle route near where I live, which I just do for a bit of exercise. Someday success for that 10-mile cycle is to beat my personal best and go as fast as I can. Some days it's to think something over and make a decision. Some days it's just to enjoy myself and some days it's just to do some cycling because I haven't got out of bed for so long or I haven't cycled for so long. I really should be outside and do a bit of exercise. So for me, success is how you define it. And it doesn't have to be first or best or fastest. That's interesting. So how do you relax? You know, you've you've got these these extremes to which you will push yourself. How do you you sit on the sofa with a glass of wine watching... TV and and if so, how does how, how do you unwind? How do you switch off? Yeah, I do, I do. I must admit, I feel more energized and alive if I'm doing something. So this morning, I got up at five to go for five thirty swim in the sea, which I loved, and I felt so much happier then. At six o'clock in the morning, cycling home, I was literally singing out loud, cycling home after a swim in the sea. Whereas now, I feel a little bit. I mean, obviously enjoying the conversation, but. It feels a bit flatter sometimes just relaxing, but I do relax. I love wine. I love food, socialising, watching TV, reading. I do all that stuff. It's good to relax now and again. Absolutely. So what's next for Paula Reid? Yeah, this is going to sound a bit mad. (laughs) So I'm very much launching Adventure Psychology as a business and as a discipline and as a network and as a book. So that's massive and I'm loving that. Physically, though, I'm in the middle of a a challenge called 50 Good Turns, which is cycling across 50 countries and doing one good turn in each. I've done 12, but then um, COVID and falling off my bike have kind of prevented cycling this year. So I've got 38 more countries to cycle across, which I'm looking forward to. And then I've got my eye on two biggies, which is skiing to the North Pole and rowing across the Atlantic, which is a known sort of challenge uh so yeah those two biggies potentially at some time in the future cycling across 38 countries launching adventure psychology writing another book stuff like that keeping yourself busy for sure yeah so so what advice would you give to anyone out there with a dream uh whether that be a business an idea uh means different things to different people clearly they're uniquely personal dreams but what advice would you give what would be your pearl of wisdom that you would impart to the world well I think I think first of all have a dream you know I think if we're not careful life passes us by and we end up doing all the logistics of it but not actually living hugely so I think have a dream is a is a good one to start with rather than just be a slave to the world or the spending all your time feeding the dishwasher and watching telly so I think that idea in itself, as you say, everyone's got a different dream, different perspective. And then there's something called the hero's journey, or if you like, going on a quest or having a moonshot 
So I think I would love to encourage people to have a big dream, although I'll let them have a little one. But then if you do go on this massive quest, if you like, it can be described as a hero's journey where, yes, there will be challenge and difficulty and peaks to climb and crisis to manage and maybe even some pain and disaster, but at least you're living. And then as you push through, you gain so much resilience and wisdom and growth and you meet amazing people and you have all these incredible experiences and you've really known that you've pushed yourself and gone for it then then that's magical i think and that's a great message on which to uh, on which to end paul i've really enjoyed speaking with you it's a it's a fascinating story we could have spent i suspect hours talking about all of the things that you've done in great depth but for anybody that does want to know more, where can they find you? How can they reach out to you? Are you available on social media? You've got you've got a website, paularead.com, I think. Yeah, I've got all sorts going right? on. I think the easiest thing is, yeah, generally look out for Paula Reed, R-E-I-D. There's the Paula Reed on Twitter and Insta. Yeah, website, paularead.com. But I've also got Adventure Psychology and The Adventure Psychologist. So Paula Reed will do, and it's probably the easiest one. Fantastic. Really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for your time. And... Uh, Looking forward to seeing what the future brings for you. Thanks, Lee. Thanks a lot. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.